what's the response you get from the people working on the front lines when you show up? And I'll just sit down and the first 10 minutes they're a little bit careful because I come from corporate. But you talk to people and you build a relationship. And after 10, 15 minutes, they hope in patience and they forget about you being there or being part of the leadership. And then you really learn. You learn about how the business really operates. Number two, we spot opportunities, which I wouldn't have seen if I would have done it for my spreadsheet or for my dashboard. But number three, next time we say, and we are like, what if we change this policy? What if we can change this product? Now I've got a bunch of people I can pick up the phone and say, hey, we said last week, what do you think would happen if I would do this? And they will give you pretty blunt feedback. Welcome back to Lead the Team with number one best-selling author and in-demand corporate trainer, Ben Fanning. On this podcast, the world's most innovative senior leaders share their top success strategies to motivate your direct reports, cultivate your top leaders, and accelerate your career. Let's get started. Here's Ben. Hey there, Lead the Team Nation. Welcome back to another great episode. Today, I have for you Edward DeVries Sand, who is the Chief Information Officer over at Axia Women's Health, which is a caring, connected, and progressive community of more than 400 providers and 150 women's health centers across New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Indiana, Ohio, and Kentucky. Their fast-growing community spans OBGYN physicians, breast health centers, high-risk pregnancy centers, laboratories, urogynecology, and fertility centers. Edward leads on the edge of business and technology, and we're going to dive in that into that today. He received his MBA from Nairad Business University. Hope I got that at least close to being correct. And his Masters of Science from St. Louis University. Edward, welcome to Lead the Team. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Whoa. All right, here we go. So you like to say, and you're known for saying, that curiosity has a compounding effect for you. What do you mean by that? Absolutely. So if you think when you learn knowledge, sometimes you don't know where it fits in. But over time, knowledge compounds, just like interest. So at Hmm. some point, I will be in a meeting sitting with an acquisition target, and we're discussing about a new business model. And I'll be able to relate it back to something I read maybe one or two years ago or something I learned from the Wall Street Journal or from a conversation. Hmm. We can never stop learning. And we never know when knowledge is applicable. And over time, it builds up. You build more and more storage of knowledge, and it will pay off over time. That's what I tell my kids, too. You know, keep reading. And at some point, it will actually be useful, believe me. But that's hard when you're a teenager. <laughs> like, sure, Dad. Sure, this calculus is going to pay off someday. Yeah, no, I, I think it's a great mindset, too, from just becoming a lifelong learner. Well, like, what's the incentive to learn? Uh, well. As a compounding effect. Absolutely. And if you translate that to leadership, if you go in to learn, so if there's, let's say there's an issue you're trying to solve, and instead of saying this is a solution, you ask questions, you try to dig deeper, you often get to the real root cause and you will learn something and you'll be able to come up with a better, better business solution versus I'm just going to apply what I did before. So curiosity is a really critical leadership skill and it allows people to know that they're truly hurt, which oh, is also I, motivating. I like that. I like that. So from a reading standpoint, you know, you mentioned that specifically, you mentioned the Wall Street Journal, probably some books in there. How do you go about processing it? Do you just sort of read and then it comes to you later what you read or do you take notes or highlight or uh, wh- how do you kind of capture what you're, uh, what you're reading? I would say if they're good articles, I'll save them and I can index them. So find them again. I'll write down quotes or keywords 
um, and group them around topics. So I'll use them uh, at some point for an article. But okay. mostly, I think it is about, for me, it's reading and just remembering it. And it's not about remembering the details. It's remembering the bigger picture. And over time, you continue to fill in more and more of the bigger picture, and you'll never mm -hmm. never fill it in completely. And it's also, at some point, it becomes relaxing. Because when you read, you mm -hmm. can actually slow down and say, I'm going to stop on this page and think through what I've read for one or two minutes and then continue reading. So you can take the time to really process the information and apply it to something in your head, to a model you're thinking about. Do you have a like a, an app that you use, or what do you do to index ideas that you re that you read? So I use Evernote, but I think every note note taking tool works. I think at some point you're just going to pick something and stick with it, and you can look for the perfect system. But at the end, the perfect system is what you use, and <laughs> that's it true. Was, yeah, and, and I think I started using Evernote 10, 15 years ago. And you know what? I will never change. Not because it's the best, but it works for me. And over time, it's amazing how much knowledge you build up. It really becomes, yeah. I think, a competitive advantage. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely an Evernote user too. And like you say, it may not be the perfect one, but it's the one, the perfect, the best one is the one that you use. And the fact that you can have it on your phone and your computer, no matter where you're reading and capture something, I think is a is something to be said for that. Or you can take a picture. If you're in a presentation, you see an idea, you can take a picture and save it to your Evernote and do the tags. And Absolutely. And these days, you know, life is busy. None of us have a 40-hour-a-week job. We all work more. So it also allows us to organize our private life. So, you know, I have a section where it's yeah. like the shopping list and, you know, the to-do list at home, which I share with my wife. Then I have yes. my, you know, my knowledge base, which is personal knowledge. And then I have work notes as well, even though a lot of the work-specific notes I keep on the company uh, company systems. But it really works because everybody yeah. needs a system to be effective. We can't work without doing that anymore these days. Yeah, so good. So good. I, like, I mean, curiosity has a compounding effect. And it helps to have those big ideas to access later and to remember. And I think it's it's so valuable. And Evernote's a good system, but yeah, there might be a lot of other ones out there for people. But just to choose, a, just say as a leader, I need to have a way to capture these ideas so I can share them with uh, my team later and the people around me. And it might be people down the road. Now, when you do you use the Wall Street Journal app or you use the actual paper itself? You get it. So I use I use both. So I use the paper, but everybody in my management team always laughs. I'm always a week behind because I take the time to read it. So for me, they okay. start you know, adding up on Monday, and like by the time Saturday hits, I'll sit down for two hours and really I'll sit in the sunroom and you know we sit down there, read our newspapers, and the kids run around, and it's it's a good way. And then during the week, I keep track of the articles in the app. If something more urgent comes along, I want to know what happens in the markets. So it's again, it's finding a personal way of making it work for you. And to me, it's really about two different speeds. One of them, I want to read the day itself. And one of them, it's okay if it's a week later. Mm -hmm. Good to have an approach to that. And I mean, it's a, probably not a huge surprise for listeners, but most executives, y'all, are reading the Wall Street Journal. So if you're not reading it, you're missing potentially out on the conversation starter. And I had one leader on who said, Ben, you know, I thought it was, I used to really get concerned about my board meetings and I'll go meet with the board and I wouldn't know what they're asking. And then someone said to me, just read the wall street journal that day. Cause they're probably going to ask you something that they read the wall street journal and how it applies to your business. And he's like, yep, that was it. I just read the wall street journal, read the wall street journal before the board meeting. And there's always going to be a topic out of there that they ask me about. 
Absolutely. And it's interesting. I've done a lot of international work and on flights, you sit next to somebody for 10, 12, 16 hours in flight to Australia. You'll talk to people. And it was interesting. I once sat next to an oil and gas executive and we had a really long discussion about where the oil prices were going in the, mm. in the future. And if somebody says, are you in the industry? I'm like, no, I read the newspaper and I've done it for 20 years by now. Nice. Um, and I said before, I read the Wall Street Journal or read the Dutch version of it, which is called Financial Dagblad. That's the same idea. Mm. It's yeah. all about you never know when you need that information. But later on, when I worked in pharmaceutical, the oil price had a really big impact on our profit margins. And I was able to have a good discussion with my CFO where we saw it was going. Nobody else, including our CEO, really had an opinion on it. So it's interesting how you can really differentiate yourself by having this knowledge that you never know when you need it. All right. So while we're down the rabbit hole, let me ask you. I know know you're a big book reader. And then you got the paper. So book is more sort of everlasting knowledge as I look at it, at least not, not all the time, but a lot of time. And then you got the newspapers, more current stuff. What is your sort of perspective on knowledge from books versus current events? And, and how do you uh, approach sort of measuring your, your intake and prioritizing it? I think I less measure it because I don't want it to become a burden. Um, but I'm curious. So, I end up buying books and I'm always, I would say, between six and 10 feet of books behind. And because I see a book and it fascinates me and I like to give books as gifts as well. So people then return the favor and said, hey, have you read this book? You should read it. To me, a book I really read and I don't know if the knowledge is current. And sometimes you read the book and you're like, well, that was not worth my time. But most of the time there are some nuggets in there. So it's more, that's really long-term value for me. Well, the newspaper, a lot of it's short-term, except for maybe some of the review um, part of the, the Wall Street Journal. A lot of it's going knowing what's going on in the markets today. What do you think interest rates are going to do? And you might not think so, but that has a major impact to what prices your suppliers are going to quote you, you know, to the capital of your business. So I think it's more short-term versus long-term. And over time, if you decide that that's one of your competitive advantages, then you should not see it as a chore. You should just enjoy doing it and start mm-hmm. to say, this is who I am. This is part of me. And I'm going to sit down. I'm going to relax for an hour with a good book. But the book can be something serious. What's your favorite book to gift? Lately, I've been giving a lot and a lot of Amp It Up by Frank Slotman. He was the CEO of ServiceNow and is now the CEO of Snowflake. And... He, the big takeaway from his book, he verbalized something I've done for a long time. It's about strategic velocity. So it's really about how, when you really pick up the pace, when you make things faster, it forces you to make choices. You can't do 20 priorities. You can only do two or three and then try to do them in fairly short cycles. So you really get results after three, six, nine months instead of the old, this transformation is going to take three years and it's never going to be completed. Ah, okay. So when you read that book, you will halfway, one, halfway through want to book it, put it down and actually go and work, go and do something. It's uh, yes, oh, an exciting okay. way of writing. And it's a really basic philosophy, but I think many of us use elements of it. He's just really good describing it in words. And what's the name of the book again? Amp it up. A-M-P it up. Amp it up. Okay. So like, okay, which which would make sense. It helps you speed up and prioritize. So, so the crux is he has, he's got a methodology of prioritizing. And then that's I, I would say he does a few things. So number one, he says, get your organization right. Align your people. I think then the next one is what you just talked about. It's about sharpened focus. What do you not do? If you think about Michael Porter, he said the essence of strategy is what do you not do? It yeah. is so true. Yeah. 
because you can do 10 things half or you can do 10 or you can do two or three things whole and those two or three things are really going to move the needle then he says pick up the pace to really go faster which forces you to cut all the excess not focus on anything else and he says only after that transform your strategy but you've got mm. to be able to execute as a team and as an organization and once you can do that, then you've got to make sure you have the right strategy, you execute the right things. But too many people get stuck in the, let's make a strategy forever, mm-hmm. but nothing happens. It's really easy to make a strategy. We can all make PowerPoints look good. Getting it done at a reasonable cost, that's the critical skill we need to have. It's so good. It's so good because a lot of times the doing it yourself as a leader, trimming the peripheral stuff that you te- that, that would be nice to do, but are detracting from the speed of execution because it's letting people spend their stray energy on other other projects that may not contribute. And, and uh, I, I agree. And and it's also not fair. If you, so I often talk about aligning incentives. So if I give you yeah. 15 priorities, your incentives are not going to be aligned because I'm sure two or three of them are going to get completed at some point, but you're going to pick the easy ones at the end of the day. If mm-hmm. I say these are the two or three things you have to do, and it might be really hard, but once you get them done, I'm going to make sure the incentives are aligned that you're going to be recognized for what you did. That means people grow faster. People are successful and everybody wants to be successful. Everybody wants to be part of a winning team and you change the whole dialogue and then Mm -hmm. you get a flywheel going. And at the end, look, business is about creating a flywheel. It's about a flywheel to grow the business. It's as a team or an organization, a flywheel to get more done. And when I mean more, it's about more outcome, more value, not more things we do. The list doesn't have to be longer. You're going to drive the impact to the bottom line. That's what it's about. Yeah, one of the clear messages today is just helping helping yourself and your team focus and then finding ways to amp it up or speed it up and motivating them, recognizing them for the right things and creating that alignment is so powerful. Want to boost your productivity and decision-making? Get vital insights from each episode delivered directly to your inbox. A great resource, whether you've listened to the episode or not. Go to benfanning.com slash insight. On a a different topic here, how does spending time on the front lines establish credibility with both board also and executives? So if you think about when we talk with our boards, we talk about how do we grow the margin? How do we grow the revenue? How do we get certain things done? But we need to link that high-level goal to actually making it happen. So I'll give you an example. I was in healthcare before uh, working for a large provider system, and we were talking about why do we have relatively low patient payment and we get most of our money from the insurance companies. Mm-hmm. And then we all debated this, and I sat in that room, and I said at some point, well, when I was at a, at a set of medical groups last week, and I actually went to the front desk and I sat down for half an hour just observing what they did. I said, and we made it really hard for patients to pay. So what if we put a solution in place that we make it easier to pay versus not pay? And they're like, well, we should do that. I'm like, but how would you do that? So so I went to the whiteboard and I sketched it out. Why could that sketch it out? Well, A, because I've read about it, how some other companies did it. That's about compounding effective knowledge again. And then B, I spent the time on the front line, so I was able to give specific examples. Mm -hmm. Um, So what I've learned, I now always spend... I would say between 10 and 20% of the time on the front line. And with the front line, I'm responsible for technology and digital. That's not where I spend time. I spend time in a medical group. So A, I'm really aligned with the key influencers within my business because they work within medical groups. B, some of them are shareholders. 
But see, I get that credibility versus the board because they'll say, well, what if we do this? And literally, you see the group turning their head towards me or, you know, to our operations person and say, what would happen? Because they know, we know how things work on the floor. Mm. Such an important lesson for all of us to remember. It's so easy as we rise up in organizations to become an office and boardroom person and then forget everything else. I remember when I was in, I came out of college as an industrial engineer and I thought I was going to do time studies and sort of plant layouts and sort of manage all these facilities that we were expanding in Latin America. But the very first thing that my boss did was send me to sewing machine school. So I learned how to sew sweatshirts and t-shirts for this athletic apparel company. And then he sent me to Latin America to a lot of the locations to sit on the manufacturing line. And we had team modular sewing. And I did this all day. And my team that I was on had been doing this for years. And I was a newbie and I was terrible. He's like, I want you to feel the pressure of affecting the other people's pay in the group and have it aching back at the end of the day because of it. And oh my gosh, after a couple of weeks, because the engineers would come in and they would immediately start to look for ways to kind of basically cut people's pay, you know, because they're like, well, you're not doing it efficiently. You should do this instead. And then to speed up. And he's like, no, no, no. Wait till you sit down there and you experience yourself. And that gave me so much more credibility at the end of the day, because I could talk about it. And I totally, I love the way that you're, it was easier for me because I was starting out. What you're saying goes even a step further because you're already an ex- a C-suite executive with the company and you're going down there and spending time on the front lines. What's the response you get from the people working on the front lines when you show up? They're excited about it. So normally when I go to a location, I try to not go as part of an executive team or board visit. I go separately. I go on my oh. own. And you know, I'll talk and I'll, and in, in general, you know, the senior physicians or the leaders know I'm coming, but I'll talk to the front desk people. I'm like, I work here with the IT team. And I'll just sit down. And the first 10 minutes, they're a little bit careful because I come from corporate. But you talk to people and you build a relationship. And after 10, 15 minutes, they're hoping patients and they forget about you being there or being part of the leadership. And then you really learn. But then you do a few things. Number one, you learn about how the business really operates. Number two, we spot opportunities, which I wouldn't have seen if I would have done it for my spreadsheet or for my mm-hmm. dashboard. But number three, next time we say, and we're like, what if we change this policy? What if we can change this product? Now I've got a bunch of people I can pick with a phone and say, hey, we said last week, well, what do you think would happen if I would do this? And they will give you pretty blunt feedback. I really believe it not only find, allows us to find more opportunities, it allows us to execute better. And lastly, I think for me, it's also a really fun way to be out there in the field and get that energy. I mean, I worked in veterinary diagnostics. I spend a lot of time in veterinary clinics. And it's really interesting when even when you talk to the pet owners, because you will talk to them and like, hey, you're here. You know, it's a wellness visit. And they're like, yeah, you're going to run a bunch of diagnostics and it's going to cost me $100. And then, you know, I waste my money. And I would ask them, why do you waste your money? And they're like, well, they tell me that Fluffy is healthy. And I'm like, but what if it's what if Fluffy's not healthy? Now we can get ahead of the curve and cure him earlier. So hmm. me and others in the company spent time. And then we said, we should find a way to say, instead of saying Fluffy doesn't have a disease, we should say Fluffy doesn't have a disease, but 120 other dogs in this, this zip code and the three zip codes around it did have a disease. 
So now instead of a disappointment, you've wasted your money, you found value. It's all about how do you create value in the eye of the people who pay. Wow. So using the data that your clinic's gathering and saying, uh, hey, look, look, your breed of dog in this area for whatever environmental reasons or they get it from other dogs, they can get sick you know, with this. And you're, and you're providing this information to the customers in that, in that, in that moment. Wow. And, and it, these specifically were tick-borne diseases, but the key is oh, okay. it's about yeah. how do you find the value? And at the yeah. end, the value Absolutely. has to be there for the person who pays, because if not, they will not come back. So, but I would have never understood that if I wouldn't have just hung out in the waiting room and talked to customers. Mm. So what was the last time you went into the field? Or secondly, I would say, when your CEO says, oh, we've got to meet with this important customer, are they going to say, well, Edward, you're in charge of IT and digital, but he go talk to that customer because you get it. Versus it's always her or him going to go out there. I think that is critical as an executive to establish that credibility by being out there in the field. Yeah, and just to put a, a little bit of a different slant on it, not just any executive, right? It, it's... You're the CIO, so you're bringing this IT deal. So you, it seems like it'll be really easy for you to stay in the office on that front. <laughs> like I've got IT related, I got cybersecurity, I was all this other stuff. But you are spending time in the field, and you are getting that broader view of the business, and that's going to make you, you know, more powerful and more and have more more insights because you're getting that cross functional exposure on the front lines. Absolutely. Look, any good CIO is a business executive who has a technology portfolio. They're not technology leaders because at the end of the day, that's not what a long-term value is. And that's why we have really good directors and VPs who report to us. They will run their functional areas. My role is to get the right people in the right seat, connected to the business objectives, and then speed it up, deliver quicker. That's my role. And then the other part of my role is workers, my board, workers, my executive teams, my shareholders, to make sure that we keep growing the business the right way. And often technology is a lever, but sometimes the answer is we should not use technology. We should find another way to solve this. Mm. It's about finding the right levers to pull to grow the business. Let's talk about your background a little bit. You're from the Netherlands, and here you are an executive at a U.S.-based company. What was your road to get here? So in Europe, I, I worked for a number of American companies, and I ended up running first the technology operations for Europe, and then I also ran Asia and Australia. So I was really, an, I would say, well-rounded international executive. And at some point, the next career step for me logically was to move to the U.S. to run at that corporate. So the company I worked for, IDEX, a great company, moved me over to the U.S., and I ran IT for the laboratories uh, worldwide, and then eventually ended up in a marketing role. And um, it was it was a great trajectory. And look, this is a great country. I, I, I enjoy living here. And look, my kids grow up here. Um, I'll live here for the rest of my life. But it's a great place to be here. Business climate. Um, nothing's perfect. But it's really a pleasure to work and live uh, live here. All right. What do American leaders, people that don't have that international flavor like you did experience, what, what can they learn from international leaders or specifically business leaders from the Netherlands? I would say two things. I think number one is if you worked international enough, you become really good at quickly learning the dynamics, the per interpersonal dynamics mm -hmm. of a specific industry or a specific location. So in a previous role, I would be one week in Japan driving change. 
the next week in Germany, and then the week after I would meet with my management team in the US. And in every culture, you have to approach things differently. So if you're in Japan, you need the top leader to agree, but then to really drive the change, you need that most senior middle manager who really has a lot of technical knowledge to accept and embrace the change. If you go in Germany, it's relatively easy. It's hierarchy. Go to the most senior you know, lady or, or woman or, or man and just get them to buy in and it will happen. And the US is also a little bit more, I would say, where the more senior person drives the, the decision. So it's about understanding that landscape and then driving it. And secondly, look, Dutch people are known for their directness. And I had to tone it down a little bit. Um, because in the Netherlands, you would say, you know, how are you today? They would say, I'm terrible. You're like, no, no, you're supposed to say, I'm doing good. Move on. So that directness. <laughs> We're like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. This is how we, this is not the Netherlands. This is how we do it. But sometimes being That's that right. open and honest and transparent is really good too. Because that yep. means your team knows where it is. They're not going to go hunting for the answers because they know I've told them the reality. And then let's go deal with it. And sometimes we're trying to be too nice and too polite. But at the end, I want my team to know how it really is so they can react to reality instead of to, you know, the polite version of how I like it to be. Because we can't manage to that. Very, very good. The word that comes to mind for me is just having such a great awareness. And when you maybe make a few mistakes on the international level, you realize I've got to change my approach. I've got to meet the team where they are and their culture and their environment to run it the most effectively. Absolutely. And a different way of looking at things is not wrong. So I can either go in and try to, you know, push them to use my way of thinking. But what if I go in with my curiosity and say, I want to end up at this goal, but I don't care that much how we get there. You know, within reason, it's going to be legal and ethical. So why don't I work and find workers then to find the path to get to the goal we want to get to together. And I call this kind of the judo strategy. So instead of saying, we're going to push it through, I'm going to type to take energy from the other group who's there and then kind of direct them into the direction I believe we should go. And once you get that right, it's really powerful. And also having that extra layer of complexity of, you know, different cultures to me makes work more exciting. It makes work more fun. Mm. Um, Because if it's too simple, we wouldn't do what we do. Let's be honest. Mm. So true. Well, on on a different note, you're obviously leading the charge at an, at an organization that's really focused on improving women's healthcare. What's it like being in such a field where you're impacting so many people, especially at you know different, you know, some of these times could be really working with people in the most difficult times of their life. And here you are, you know, as, as, as an executive, you know, in that world. I would, I'm incredibly lucky that I get to lead part of the organization. I mean, we deliver close to 1% of the babies in the U.S., which is pretty astonishing. And, hmm. you know, we're also, you know, we are working with different organizations. We just started a partnership as Kayaba Care to make sure that we help, I would say, underserved groups as well in the population with their maternal needs. It's beautiful to help to drive to better outcomes and to use data and technology. So our physicians and our clinical staff can really focus on the patient. And we'll take care of the rest in the back end. It's beautiful that every time we make a difference, we can impact a life or if we're lucky, two lives. It gives a little bit more to the mission versus, I think Steve Jobs said it when he was trying to recruit a CEO for Apple back then. He said yeah. to John Scully, do you want to sell sugar water forever or do you want to make a difference? You know what? My teams make a difference in the health of women and in the health of their babies every day. And it's pretty cool. cool. to. Uh, yeah, I can tell. I can tell. I can see in your face that you uh, yeah, how, how meaningful it is. 
No, Larry, it, it, I, every time I've got a CIO on or really any executive on these days, I got to bring up artificial intelligence. Uh, you brought up the cool tick example whenever you're work, working in the in the veterinarian uh-huh. world and you were able to say, you know, what what matters? Well, there's a use that data to, to determine, you know, healthcare outcomes helpful, hopefully for, for animals. How do you see AI impacting your business? I think we're still early on with really applied examples. I think over the coming year, what we'll see, we'll see AI being used for low risk activities. Um, simple things like sorting faxes to the right place and things like that. There's still a lot of manual work in healthcare. Mm-hmm. I would hope over the longer term, and I think it will, is that we go towards what I would call guided intelligence. So we have really good mm-hmm. clinicians, doctors, and I don't see anything quickly replacing the work they do because they have the relationship with the patient. And in our case, you know, they touch the stomach of, you know, of our patient, they make sure that the baby is in the right position. You're not going to replace that quickly. What we can do is say, well, based on the background and effects of this patient compared to the large data set we have, Hmm. because we will have the largest data set of women's health in the U.S. or probably globally, I would suggest you Hmm. also check postpartum depression or other things based on the characteristics of this patient. So we Uh will start suggestions like that to our physicians. Like a prompt. Yeah, yeah. Our physicians will have the clinical autonomy to make the right decision um, because at the end, we're not at a level yet where we can replace that with technology. And I think especially when it comes to pregnancies, I struggle to see how you get there because the human relationship does add value there. We have amazing doctors and it's, look, the best part of my job is to read a lot of the testimonials. You know, we look at that and we look at the patient reviews. And when you walk into our care centers, there's a wall of baby cards. So most of the time when, you know, we deliver a baby, they'll send us a card. It's really cool. So I have a tendency to take pictures of me standing in front of these baby cards, which is super cool. Because at really? the end, that's what we do every day as a team. Yeah, that, that's going to be a great motivator too, right? To create alignment. And you got someone at a computer maybe doing coding or analyzing data. And then just to have a card like that to remind you of, hey, we're doing all this. For one reason, well, multiple reasons, but the end state is a healthy kiddo or or a healthy healthy mother. Absolutely, and as an organization, we really we look at dashboards, we track our outcomes, and and we see consistently that we're tracking all the right clinical outcomes and that we deliver better results than other you know hospitals or medical groups. And to us, that's a driver of what we do. It's it's pretty cool to see. Now you said you're going to be the largest, have the largest data collection of. What was it? Well, uh, if you think about women's health, so we are on a unified, getting close to being on a unified platform. And so if you think about it, we will have, I would say, the most OBGYN physicians on a single single platform. So that means we have the largest data set. And we obviously only use this internally. But if we can use it to more specific, say, for this subset of patients, we should really check, you know, for certain um, conditions. They'll be so powerful. And that allow, again, that means that our technology gives another lever to our physicians to improve the care. And that's what we're all about. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Because physicians are people too. And if you can make their job easier and help them focus on the more critical things, then then overall the outcome should be better and help them reduce the workload on the more menial task. I mean, that's going to be huge. Well, and, and that's a large part too. Like if the more clicks I can take away, the you know, every time the doctor doesn't have to click, but they can actually look the patient in the face, that makes a whole difference. Because at the end, that relationship is incredibly valuable. 
So our team is really there trying to optimize the systems we have so we make their life easier. And the way we say this is, look, we take care of our our, our clinics, our care centers, so they can take care of the patients. That's what this whole game is all about, the patients. And we all have a role to play in the team. Just like in a football team, we all play a role. Edward, what's your parting thought for our listeners today? I think the parting thought is get your organization right. Get the right people in the right place. Pick the right goals and then drive. And make sure you don't drive for two, three years effort. Drive for three to six months effort and then just string them together. Execute relentlessly and then keep learning so you can hit, you can execute the right things. Great playbook. Edward, thank you for coming on today, sir. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. If you're an executive at a crossroads in your career and thinking about quitting, do this before you do anything else. Head over to benfanning.com slash quit to receive a free signed copy of my number one best-selling book, The Quit Alternative, The Blueprint for Creating the Job You Love Without Quitting. You'll learn the critical questions you must answer before you make such an impactful decision. Go to benfanning.com slash quit to get this valuable resource for just the cost of shipping. Ben Fanning is a number one best-selling author, Inc. Magazine columnist, and CEO of the Fanning Group, an international consultancy and corporate training company. To learn how they can help your organization, go to benfanning.com.